0: What is the dirtiest thing in your house? I asked our kids that the other day. Here's some answers. The trash can, shoes, my porta potty, and dirt. We've got a lot of dirty dirt in our house. Kids, maybe you think of your hamster cage or perhaps the yard where the dog has had its business. When something is dirty, we need it to be cleaned. Do you remember your first date with your spouse? How many of you went on that date without checking your teeth? I'm sure not many. You're going to look in there. I've got to floss. If there's a big chunk of lettuce sticking in there, I've got to get it out, right? We clean things that are dirty. Well, that's the theme of this passage. Last week we started part one. Today we are right in the middle of this, and we saw from last week the Pharisees had a way to approach this through externalism. Moralism, really a sense of I've got to fix the outside, but it's not an internal problem. Hypocrisy, legalism, it has a number of names. Jesus is telling us today there is something dirtier in your house than dirty dirt. He's saying it to me as well. What is that? Well, it's our hearts, and we can't cleanse it, and we can't fix it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does and can. We look first at what defiles us. Here we are in Matthew 15. Jesus has done miracle after miracle. The Pharisees and the scribes, probably a part of the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem, are livid. They're sent up to investigate. They want to find out who Jesus is and why he's causing such a commotion. They want to put him to death. They ask him a trick question. Jesus, why do you and your disciples not wash your hands before you eat? That's the tradition of the elders, Jesus. What's wrong with you guys? You're breaking tradition. Do you Remember what the Pharisees were doing last week? They are adding commandments of men to the law of God. And they're in the process taking away the law of God and not looking at the law as they ought either. They're misunderstanding the law and the gospel. Sin and holiness... And grace, according to the cleanly laws of the Old Testament, there were teachings about washings, remember that? And that's important here, because you couldn't eat certain foods, and if you touch certain things, you are unclean, you are defiled. Leviticus 15, you can't have skin diseases or diarrhea or discharge, or if you touch blood or a dead body, if you are a Jew and you touch a Gentile, and you don't wash your hands ceremonially, and you touch your food, that defiled Gentile has defiled your food, you're eating it, it's defiled you, you're unclean. What does that mean? You can't go to the temple. You can't be in the presence of God. The Pharisees had a remarkable ability to look like what they really were not. Externalism is a sin of the heart, interestingly, that says outwardly I've got no other gods before the Lord, but inwardly I'm worshiping the idol of self or whatever other idol we create. Outwardly I'm keeping the Sabbath. Inwardly I'm not resting in the Lord. As Michael Reeve says, they're camouflaging their sin. They're not repenting of it. They're straining out the gnat of unclean hands And swallowing the camel of spiritual filth. They're whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they look great. They're full of dead bones inside. They're not discerning that the law points them to their need for a Savior. They're not discerning that the law talks about the motivations of the heart, loving the Lord and loving their neighbor. It's all performance. Their eyes are fixed on themselves, not on God or on anyone else. It's hollow. It's loveless. It's vain. It's chilly. It's cold. All the catchwords are there, all the outward appearance of religion. It lacks the heart. It's my kingdom, my will, my agenda. This danger of externalism is a threat today as much as it was then because it's naturally how we are wired. What do people a lot of times think Christianity is? Going to church when I can and trying to be a good person. Give me a list, I'll do it. Externalism is trying to address the real problem of uncleanness through an external measure. Jesus says, this is impossible. Externalism says, okay, if I stay away from that person or that thing or this activity, and if I try hard enough and read my Bible enough and pray enough, then I might be worthy. Then God will see that I deserve to be cleaned. The bad things out there made me do it. Adam, the woman, made me do it. She gave me the fruit. Eve Satan made me do it the alcohol is why I'm enslaved to drunkenness the woman or the man is the reason I'm lusting they are the problem if they didn't do this then I wouldn't be doing this the child made me angry the neighbor made me covet why did he have to come home with that car externalism outside in it never works it never addresses the heart there's no change There's no trust, there's no love, there's no security. It's all about self-justification, self-reliance. Here's what one author says. One sign of externalism is that when something goes wrong in your life, you immediately begin to think, well, why did God make that happen, allow that to happen? I thought I was living a good life. I thought I was being good enough. That's a sign. This is the way politics is, outside in. To fix the problem of society, we've got to have certain structures and applying what we know through science, and then we'll get it fixed. This is popular culture outside in. This author writes, why do we crave celebrities? Because to be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities. We want to look like them. We see the magazine. We think, I've got to be prettier. I've got to be strong, or I've got to have better skin, or I've got to I've got to clean myself. That's the picture. Outside in, it never works. Same in the ministry. This author writes Charles Spurgeon says, Don't preach the gospel to save your soul. He who pre- through preaching is righteous shall die every Sunday. These forms of externalism are rooted in pride. I'm a good person, it's someone else's fault. Sin is just external. It's an action, so that means I've got to have a certain action externally to fix it. Jesus, though, says what in verse 11? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Whatever goes into our mouth, verse 17, goes through the stomach, it's expelled. It goes into the latrine, right? That's where it goes, kids. You eat... You digest, you go to the bathroom. The Pharisees were offended. The disciples said, Jesus, you're going to make these guys angry. You've bumped them, Jesus. Jesus says, oh, these Pharisees are just plants that are not planted by God. They will be pulled up from the roots, just like Matthew 13, that parable of the weeds and the wheat. An enemy has done this. The Pharisees are plantings of Satan. They will be destroyed at the judgment. They're blind guides. They say that they are leading the blind. That's an irony here. Romans 2. We are the ones that have the religious knowledge. We are leading others. We're telling the blind where to go. But Jesus says, You're blind and you're leading a blind person. Where are you both going to go? Into the pit. It's a warning about who we listen to. It's a warning to teachers, to pastors, to elders. What did the Pharisees say was the answer to the problem of human defilement? Of our need to be cleansed, which we all know. We all know our guilt and our sin before God. They said, How do you fix that? Wash your hands. (laughs) But what about my guilt? Do you have someone that can help me with my sin? Wash your hands. What about my distress? What about the way others have sinned against me? I feel dirty because of what they've done. Wash your hands. False doctrine kills. They will be destroying both themselves and their hearers. Beloved, for all of us, be careful who you follow and listen to and agree with and imitate myself as well. Are they pointing to Jesus? As you listen to that person, that podcast, that blog, does that person make you think more of the beauty and the grace and the loveliness of Christ? Does that person make you think, I need the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ? Peter responds, I don't get this, Jesus. Now we might think, Peter, you're so dull. But do you see that he admits he needs help? He admits his confusion. The Pharisees never do that. John Calvin said, a teachable spirit is the first mark of a regenerate soul. We need the spirit to understand, to see, to have ears to hear from externalism. To the heart, Jesus says, I'm going to explain the parable. He loves his disciples. He loves you. He's gracious. He's patient with us. Nothing outside you can defile you. That's important because some of you maybe have been horribly sexually abused, physically assaulted and abused. You've seen trauma. You've experienced great grief. Some of you maybe work in an environment where you hear people blaspheme Jesus' name all the day where God's name is taken in vain. This promise is important. Nothing outside you can make you unclean. Hear that, Emmaus wrote. Jesus says, he's talking about food. It can't touch your soul. Mark 7, he declares all foods clean. That's not in our passage, but it's in the parallel in Mark. That's a huge statement. Who can say all foods are clean but God alone, the giver of the law? Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the son of God become man. He says i have come to fulfill it. Later on, Peter, all those animals in that vision in Acts 10, get up and eat, Peter. All of these laws about clean, cleanliness and food and being defiled is a physical aid to teach you and me that we are spiritually and morally unclean. That's the point of them. And that we cannot enter the presence of God unless we are cleansed. Christ comes, he says, the heart of the matter, verse 19, is this. See those really heart level issues in verse 19? This is the heart of the issue Are you and I sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we are sinners? This is the Pharisees' assumption. We are morally neutral. So we can make ourselves good by performing good things. So if I murder someone, I'm not a bad person. I just did a bad thing. If I'm a drunk driver and kill someone, you've heard this in the news, that really wasn't me. I don't know what came over me. It's a demon. It's just... I'm a good person that makes a bad choice. That's the Pharisees. Sin is all external. But what if Jesus is right? And he is. That evil actions manifest an evil nature. The tree is known by the fruit. Jesus says foundationally, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Here's one person a dog is not a dog because it barks, it barks because it's a dog. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Adam is the federal head of all humanity. Through one man's sin, death came into the world, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned when Adam sinned. I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, did my mother conceive me? What's the heart of the human problem then? The sinful heart. Not the organ that pumps blood, kids. You have a heart, physically. Not the world, follow your heart, meaning your emotions. Craig Troxell, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, so helpful. The heart is the governing center of life. When you see heart in the Bible, think mind, will, affections, conscience, the source of all of our desires, our thoughts, our fears, our words. It's the seat of the soul. As Emlet says, the basic inner disposition of the person who lives in either covenant obedience or covenant disobedience before God. The heart thinks, remembers, feels, experiences, chooses, acts. The body, your body and soul, so am I, carries out the heart's desires. Keep the heart with all vigilance, kids, moms and dads. As we think in our hearts so We are, the Proverbs say. This means the evils of verse 19 are not just in some really evil people. They're in all people. In the heart is every form of evil in seed form. Beloved, there is no sin that you and I don't have the potential to commit, Colin Smith says. Now we start to see The root problem is not out there in the culture, as evil as it is, and as much of an influence as it does have, yes. But it's in here. It's a fire. It's like a part of your house is on fire, the cushion, and it will spread. Sin is not first and foremost what we do, it's what we are. Here's an illustration I found helpful. One person writes, Kids, say you're at home and there's water on the floor. What's that water doing on the floor, mom and dad say? Well, you said, well, someone bumped my hand. Well, I didn't ask you that. I said, why is there water on the floor? Oh, because there was water in the cup. Whatever is in your heart and mine will come out when we get bumped. Nobody outside me can make me think evil thoughts. Nobody outside me can make me commit murder or steal or speak harshly. The words we speak are the megaphone of our hearts. They can't make me angry in a sinful way. As parents with kids, it's easy to think if I keep my kids from the bad stuff out there then they're fine but as Smith says what if the bad evil is already inside your kids and us as well kids do mom and dad get uptight sometimes one person says that's because they know what's in you and they know what is in them as well human wickedness The evil seeds are within us. Every sin is an inside job. No bad company and no devil did it. I did it. If we think we're beyond these sins, we must take heed lest we fall. So in application, it's not enough to shelter our kids at home from every evil temptation because they carry with them a heart ready for every sin. Until the heart is changed, they're not safe. No matter what we do. Yes, the influences are evil. Yes, they have an impact, of course. But the biggest problem is here. Does that mean I can just watch whatever I want? Listen to whatever I want? No. The influence is real there. Here's DeYoung. It's not just what we're watching, but are our hearts incited to lust or violence by watching this? See, he goes to the heart. Am I sympathetic to sin by watching this? Am I laughing more at things that are dishonoring to God by watching this? What does it say about what I love and what I listen to and watch? When I'm really embarrassed by my kids, they hit my buttons. Well, no, that button is my heart. What's it saying about my heart? We are sinners and we commit actual sins. Sin is lawlessness. God has written his law on our heart. Every sin begins with an evil desire. Pride isn't just a sin. It is a part of the definition of sin. Behind every sin is a lie. Every sin is a fruit of being weary of God. When we give in to temptation, that temptation becomes more strong the next time. Sins become habits. Here's an example someone gives. We act in the moment, we're impulsive. No self-control with our thoughts, with what we look at on our phones, on the internet, our words. We speak maliciously. We treat someone in a harsh way. We can't take it back. God is a God of grace, but those those words wound, they harm. They manifest whose kingdom we are living in, a kingdom of self or a kingdom of God. Paul says, In other places, what Jesus says here, pornea, see that? Verse 19, all forms of sexual sin. This is important to say today, as DeYoung says, adultery, fornication, sex before marriage, prostitution, pornography, homosexuality, any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what he's talking about here. In Mark 7, Jesus mentions envy, meaning an evil eye. I'm jealous of their looks, their personality, their success. I have an evil eye. I'm not rejoicing with them. My eyes are evil because my heart is evil. These are moral words. This comes right out of the Ten Commandments, Jesus' words here in the end of Matthew 15, verse 19. Not therapeutic words. Not, I got frustrated. I fell into sin. She has issues. That's cultural language. Here's another application. I'm sure you, as well as I, sometimes think this. When I'm angry and stressed, I have said unkind words. Have you? And I might think, why did I just do that? I can be startled. I might think, where did that vileness come from? When I'm astonished, it betrays how I forget the unseen sewer that exists in me at all times. Reeves says, I isolate, I minimize my sinfulness. Then I offer just fake repentance. It's not real. Because I just haven't been as good as I think I am. I'm shifting away from what Jesus says here. It leaves me prayerless, smug, merciless, and censorious of others. It's evil. How can you and I be made clean? Seconds. The world says you are what you do. Jesus says you do what you are. The gospel says remember who you are in Christ. Remember who he is and what he's done. One Old Testament writer, and then this is picked up by a commentator, says this. Zechariah 3. This is a picture for us, beloved, of how we can be made clean. Zechariah is transported to the center of the temple. He sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. You can look if you want in your text. He's there and it's the day of atonement. Incense is rising. Only one day a year can the high priest enter the Holy of Holies. He does so for a week of preparation and seclusion. The night before he prays all night. He has to get to a place where he cannot touch anything unclean. He cannot eat anything unclean. He has to put on clean clothes. He has to bathe. He goes in to sacrifice for his own sins. He comes out, wash, repeat. Same thing for the sins of the priests. He comes out again, wash, rinse, repeat for the sins of the people. This writer says it's all done in public. People would watch this. He's behind a veil, They see him bathe, go in. Sacrifice, come out. He is their representative before God. He's pure as he goes in. He's clean. But Zechariah 3 says, here is the high priest, Joshua, standing how? Filthy. Covered in excrement. The writer says, how could that happen? The Israelites wouldn't let a priest go dirty like that. Think of R.C. Sproul's book, The Priest's Dirty Clothes. They're not going to let him go there before the temple in the presence of God on that day? There's no way this would happen. What God is doing is giving a prophetic vision so that we could see the way we really are before God outside of Christ. All our attempts to be good, to clean ourselves, are filthy They're worthless. All our morality and good works don't get into the heart. We're unfit for the presence of God. And just as we're about to have total despair, Zechariah 3 says, take off those dirty clothes. Joshua, I've taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. I will bring about my servant, the branch. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. All the sacrifices didn't do it. But centuries later, a greater Joshua, Jesus does. On the day of atonement, he is betrayed and denied by all who loved him. He is forsaken by his father. He is stripped naked. He is crucified naked on that cross for our sins. Our sins are laid on him. He who knew no sin has made sin for us. We receive by faith his righteousness Revelation 19, the garment that is clean and bright, it's given to you to wear, beloved, pure linen. That is what can deal with the problem of your heart and mind. Christ, his blood, his righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson says, Do you know that the only thing that God says he will forget is your sin? He says, I will remember their sins no more. He has blotted them out with the blood of his son, Jesus. Many of you might be haunted by past sins. Decades ago, maybe this morning, Satan wants to tempt you to say, just sin, no big deal. And when you sin, he wants to paralyze you with guilt, screwing guilt into your heart, driving you to despair, paralyzing you with shame. Remember this picture of Zechariah. Your filthy garments of sin through Christ are taken away. You are clothed with his garments head to toe. Ferguson says Can you see yourself today standing before the throne of God? Can you hear today, beloved, at Emmaus Road, that God says, I don't see any sin in that one? I see only purity. I've covered your sin with the blood of Jesus. I've clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus. Does God really forget your sin as you trust him, Ferguson says? Yes, he does. He tells you today your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. It's easy, though, for us to forget what God says he will forget. God remembers your sin no more. So, Ferguson says, perhaps the thing we need to remember most of all is the one thing the Lord tells us He remembers no more. There is nothing in road more glorious than to be living a paralysis free Christian life in the presence of your Heavenly Father, knowing that He loves you today more than you ever will know. He's given His Son to cover your sins. He says, your sins I remember no more. That brings us peace. Matthew over and over wants to tell you and teach you about Jesus. He overcomes hard hearts. In his patience and kindness, by grace through faith you are justified. His righteousness imputed to you. He never sinned in these ways of Matthew 15. His heart is pure and holy. No adultery, no sensuality, no false witness, no slander, no theft. Perfectly obedient. We need forgiveness to be at peace with God. And we need to be cleansed to live in the presence of God. This is the double benefit of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Amen. In response, let's stand. You'll see...